Good afternoon and welcome to the 108th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, a discussion of stresses on the family in COVID-19 with Dana Green, Gonzalo Basicalupe, and Christine Gibb. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and topics. And please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, August 19th, 2020, there are 22,233,473 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 21 million 974,080 cases reported yesterday. Of those, 5,512,166 are in the United States, up from 5,469,444 reported yesterday. There are now a total of 172,564 deaths reported in the United States from COVID-19. That's up from 171,343 yet another day with more than 1,000 deaths day by day. As a way to bring humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way. I'd like to continue that now with just two uh, brief obituaries, part of an extraordinary series put together by The Guardian, which you can check out online. It's called The Guardian Lost on the Frontline series. Elva Graveline, 52, nursing assistant, was a perfectionist who doted on patients. She was a certified nursing assistant at Lawrence Memorial Hospital in New London, Connecticut, and died on the 19th of May. Elva Graveline took small, graceful steps down the hospital corridors. You could see her smile coming, said Connie Fields, her local union president. A perfectionist at work, Elva often arrived an hour early for her 6.45 a.m. shift, according to her husband, Mike Graveline. She doted on her patients with shampoo razors that she brought from home. She just wanted them smelling good, Mike said. Elva, who grew up in Texas, adored her two daughters and three granddaughters. The youngest, Isla, was born in April, but Elva never held her for fear of exposing her to COVID-19. Fields said she believes Elva, who worked on a floor designated for COVID patients, got sick from reusing protective gear at work. In March, Elva and others wore the same N95 respirator masks for two weeks. Fields said by early May, employees received new N95s each day. Hospital spokesperson Fiona Phelan replied that we value and respect employees too much to not provide the protective gear needed in this battle. Elva tested positive for COVID-19 on the 12th of May and died a week later of cardiac arrest. This should never have happened, Mike recalled telling his wife as he stood at her bedside just after she died. I just wish this was me. Gabriel Chinwendu, 56, was a psychiatric nurse and planned to host a barbecue once he recovered. A registered nurse at Catholic Charities in the Archdiocese of Washington, D.C., he died on the 24th of April, 2020. Gabriel Chinwendu's family and friends remember him as a gentleman who was dedicated to his work as a psychiatric nurse. 
love for one another was his mission to care. That was why what happened, said his wife, Gloria Chinwendu, the couple who had immigrated from Nigeria years ago had four children together. <clears throat> Excuse me. His love, his job, and others led him to lose his life. Gloria said Gabriel was outfitted with personal protective equipment and always washed his hands after seeing patients he suspected of having COVID-19, but on the 17th of April, he left work feeling tired. Two days later, he went to the emergency room. He was feeling better by the time his test came back positive, and he even promised to throw a family barbecue after he recovered. He died a few days later. Okay, let's turn to today's discussion. And just a reminder, those compelling brief obituaries I was just reading, you can check those out on the Guardian's Lost on the Frontline page. Be sure to check those out. I'm really, really happy to introduce my guest today. Uh, Gonzalo Bascalupe, first guest, is a professor of counseling psychology at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, and he lives, leads the Citizen Education and Governance Team at the Research Center for Integrated Disaster Risk Management. He's also an artist and his work has been showcased at the 2018 exhibition Liminal Territory and the Cartographies of Bodies and Territories in January of 2019 at the PUC Innovation Center, the UC campus, San Joaquin Library and the Casa Central Hall. And I should say that Gonzalo is a, a friend of COVID Calls. This is his third visit to COVID calls, and he also designed the artwork for COVID calls. So it's great to see you again, Gonzalo. Can, can I make a Gibb correction assistant professor. about something? Yes, please. Yes, did I get yes, the, something uh, wrong with the bio? Yes, yes, so it changed because uh, last week was my last week at Sihiden, and and I, I'm associated uh -huh. with another center, yeah, in one region, and the center is called Creasur, which is Create the South. It's about territories and regions. I just we, we, We'll update that bio later. Okay, and that one's based in Santiago though? It's actually based in Concepcion in the south, but it's, you know, it's, uh, in Concepcion. you okay. can be anywhere. I mean, so yeah. Right. Okay, thank you for that correction. This is, when you come on COVID calls multiple times, you can see people's <laughs> careers literally changing in between one visit to the next. Um, so good to see you, Gonzalo. Uh, let me also introduce Christine Gibb, Assistant Professor of the School of International Development and Global Studies and the Faculty of Social Sciences at the University of Ottawa. Christine works on environmental migration, especially the experiences and mobilities of survivors following natural hazards like typhoons and the formal and informal governance of people's mobility. Her regional focus is often Southeast Asia. For her COVID-19 work, she's been working with a team of researchers studying the pandemic experiences and mobilities of children and seniors, older adults in parts of Canada and the United States. The third member of my team of guests today is Dana Green, Dana M. Green. She is currently an independent researcher on vulnerable populations to disaster with ties to the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Following 20 plus years of teaching courses on disasters, race and ethnicity, gender and sexuality, social theory, genocide studies, and Judaic studies. Real leader in the disaster research field. She's leading the Converge Redefining Family During COVID-19 Working Group with Dr. Jessica Pardee, who's at the Rochester Institute of Technology. 
Dana usually works on social vulnerability to disasters research, including race, social class, gender, and sexual orientation in both natural and technological disasters. In addition to her work on several projects that are unrelated to the pandemic, she's also working on multiple COVID-19 projects, including one with Marcy Lynn Chinfrani that focuses on the lived realities of individuals living with chronic illness and disability in North America during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'd like to thank you all for your time today and welcome you to COVID Calls. Happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you. So let me start the way I have been starting just to find out where you're calling from and what the pandemic situation is there. And Dana, since UNC has been so much in the news, I'm not sure if that's where you are, but let me start with you. Where are you calling from and what's it looking like there? I am calling from just outside of uh, Chapel Hill, North Carolina. I'm in the Research Triangle. Um, and yes, Ch um, Chapel Hill has been in the news. North Carolina has been in the news because the students at uh, UNC have been in, in class for one week. And as of today, they are being sent home. Um, we are moving to purely on online instruction. And uh, the reason for this is that there were 134 new cases of COVID stemming from what they're calling four clusters. Um, and in North Carolina, an outbreak is two cases and a cluster is five or more. So there were 134 cases and um, only four new or four remaining um, rooms in the evacuate in the, uh, what do you call it, uh, quarantine dorm. Um, and as a result, due to a fear of lack of resources, they opted to shut everything down, send the students home. Um, so yes, that's that's nearby. I also looked up a little bit of the data um, for the state and the average turnaround time in North Carolina for COVID tests right now is two to three days. And the last number that has been published uh, was on August 7th of 2020. Uh, we had 3,925 people tested of those 3,925 3, people that were tested, 58% were African-American or racial and ethnic minorities. And of that 58%, 80% of them came back positive. So it speaks to the number of people who are working in the lower wage um, industries and also in, um, in less or more diverse types of wage earning categories. Um, and we're seeing that you know people of color and more impoverished groups of people are more susceptible to the disease in the state. I know, uh, thank you for giving us that context, Dana. And I know this time of year also, of course, there's always great concern about hurricanes in North Carolina. Uh, that's also been, I guess, on your mind there because you work on multiple different Absolutely. types of hazards. Has there been significant planning on how people would shelter or um, not shelter in the case of a, of a hurricane in the midst of a pandemic? Absolutely. Um, there's been a, a tremendous amount of planning that has been going into this. Um, and we actually just did have a, a, an earthquake, or not an earthquake, well, we had an earthquake and a hurricane hit within a week of each other. Um, first was the hurricane. And while it was only a category one, it, it caught everybody's attention. Um, what we saw was that there's some concern over sheltering and what kinds of institutions can be used as shelters at the moment. How do we social distance within a shelter? And so the number of rooms in, let's say, a school or in 
an, an ordinary, like a hotel that would be used as a shelter were then um, co-opted where we had more space in between each individual family or each individual, each individual. Um, but there was also concern over whether people were positive or negative and people who were suspected as having COVID were segregated off into different areas. Um, in addition to the hurricane though, we had an earthquake that was minor as I would see it coming from California. I'm a native Californian, um, but at 5.4 on the Richter scale, it was significant for here in North Carolina and definitely disrupted life um, in the state. Um, what we're seeing right now, um, I'm also within the 10 mile uh, emergency planning zone of a nuclear power plant. Um, so with hurricanes, with earthquakes, with the pandemic, all of that is, is creating great concern in this area because you don't want the, what we've seen like with Katrina, this cascading effect of disaster upon disaster right. upon disaster, primary, secondary, tertiary. Um, and so what we're really looking at is how do we enforce and how do we maintain emergency preparedness across the state? Um, there are more evacuation centers being set up. There are, um, there's greater testing that's being ramped up that was announced today that they're trying to get about 80% more um, tests available within the state by the end of the week. Um, because it, while we have been scaling back on testing and people have been reluctant to go be tested because of, let's say, the, the uh, hurricane or the earthquake, where they're more concerned about their individual property than they are about their personal health right. or public health and public safety, what we're seeing is um, this you know, decrease in the number of tests that are being conducted. What we're trying to do now is to increase the number of tests, um, which hopefully will be something that people will... Um, comply with, we're hoping. Dana, um, thank you for that. Yeah, what a complicated set of factors. And I wonder how many people listening just went and, and Googled how close do I live to a nuclear power plant? Christine, um, can I ask you the same question? Where are you calling from and, and what's the situation there? Uh, so I'm calling from a suburb just outside of Montreal in Canada. And the situation is quite different here. Our numbers are significantly lower. In Quebec, in, in the province where I live, we had 46 new con uh, confirmed cases today. And the province um, where I live actually has the highest number of cases uh, in total in in all of Canada. So the pandemic is, is, is still um, front of uh, mind here. And the, and the issues that a lot of folks are thinking about right now have to do with school reopenings and all of these new plans about how are we going to send our kids back to school and there have been multiple versions of these school reop reopening plans in different parts of the country and so there are a lot of discussions um, among parents um, form formally and informally in the media with teachers about how exactly it's going to work, uh, whether we're going to be sending our school, our, our students um, back to the physical buildings, what kind of hybrid mm. virtual um, classroom, how is that going to affect different groups of students? So that's really what's front of mind here right now. And it, and it also speaks to the way that uh, the people who are getting COVID-19 has shifted over the course of the past couple of months. So 
earlier on, most of uh, the people who were catching COVID-19 were in long-term care homes. And that's shifted and there's a lot more community spread now. So there is a lot more concern that by sending our kids back to daycare and school en masse, uh, there's going to be a greater risk that, that there's going to be a lot more cases in the coming weeks and months. Christine, as you may know, in the absence of strong federal guidance on this particular issue about schools, um, you know, we have intense struggles at the state and local level in the United States around just around basic trust issues and who to trust when it comes to this very important question about whether or not children should be going back. Do you have similar issues there where you are? Uh, education is a provincial issue here in Canada. So the feds have um, some say, but it's more of a recommendation as opposed to any actual power. And it has sparked a number of conversations about whether the federal government should play a role in developing educational policy and setting rules about what schools can and cannot do. So the pandemics actually opened up this conversation about education that's been mm. simmering for a while, but um, now it's coming more to the fore. Uh, but education is very much decided at a provincial level. And at the university where I work, at the University of Ottawa, we actually straddle the Ontario and Quebec provincial border. And so many of the families who live in this area may work on one side of the border and live on the other. And so it, it makes it quite challenging if you have certain rules for sending your kids to school, but your employer is on the other side and they have different expectations. So you're bringing in a lot of economic issues and back to work issues in with educational and childcare um, risk, risk responsibilities. That is so interesting. I guess I hadn't thought about that as listening to you describe that. But in the United States, if you look at say Illinois and Indiana, or Pennsylvania, West Virginia, we have similar situation with states that have vastly different approaches to the pandemic, but people would live in towns that might literally straddle that. straddle that line. Thank you for that context. Christine Gonzalo, let me let me turn to you. Where are you today? So I'm in Santiago, Chile. I'm I'm beginning my sixth, not beginning, actually right in the middle of the six months of quarantine. Um, although I've been out a few times um, taking care of my parents, pharmacy stuff that I couldn't order. And, um, and I've been um, invited to be in TV studios a few times. So um, that's the only times that I've been out. Um, so Chile is in a very similar situation to the United States. Um, we had a peak later, we had a peak on June 16, 18, with about 5,000 cases. Actually, at that point, 30,000 cases, but that was because they 
had accumulated once, but it was like 5,000 cases in, in one day. We, and then it had been going down since then. Um, and now we are in the, it varies a lot, but around 1,500 um, as an average every day. Uh, you know, we are only 19 million people. So it's, it's, a, it's, it's one of the highest daily contingent in the world. Um, and we have, but, uh, but, you know, Chile has a high concentration of people, about 40% of people live in the capital. So the data in the capital defines what's happening nationally, even though regionally it is quite different. And so it's like in the United States. Um, some places the contagion is not, it's expanding. The reproduction rate is, is moving up. But, and um, it's been, you know, personally, I never thought I would be in the place I am right now. I, I think I've been on an average, since we're talking a lot about averages, at least once or twice a day, I go to radio or TV or have a column or I'm getting a call. Like right now, there's some reported calling. I get, you know, ask opinions and um, it's, it's crazy. Um, and I mean, I'm completely exhausted by now. I mean, I'm, I hope actually the meeting I have at six is that I got 10 people to ask them for advice about what to do <laughs> because I cannot sustain this level of work. Um, my classes start, I don't know, in two weeks or a week and I don't even know what I'm almost like, I, I know what I'm teaching and courses that I, but you know, I have to think how I'm going and, um, <clears throat> I became sort of like a political figure, um, which is totally nuts because it's not, you know, something that I was expecting to happen. And, you know, unlike, and I was making the parallels with the United States, we also have a very important voting thing on October 28th. It's a plebiscite to approve or not approve a process to get a new constitution. And then there's another vote for change. There's going to be 11 times to vote between now and the end of this presidency in a year, and a half, less than a year and a half, which is incredible. So imagine what it, it's like in the United States. The there's also a lot. We are coming out of um, a lot of un social unrest, so to speak, like the George Floyd in the United States. But right before the pandemic, uh, we've been on curfew for since March um, and they're going to start lifting it a little bit. And now we are in the whole process of figuring out, are we going to have a plebiscite or not? And um, yeah, that's so that now in terms, I'm teaching in yeah. UMass Boston. Uh, so I'm teaching online. I, it was crazy because until like, I don't know, a month and a half, they were still thinking, are we going to have some people on campus? Finally, we convinced them that it was crazy. We had a lot of problems and a lot of sort of digital protests because our campus was used by the police as a place to get all the, to control the communities around. So it created a huge turmoil. Um, we do think, many of us think that there's not gonna be an open campus in the spring. And I already said, I'm not going back to campus. Um, and, you know, a lot of us had the option to choose to teach just online. Um, but I, we don't know yet what is going to happen in the spring. Although I do think that that's, 
you know, as a public health person, I think that generally people <laughs> don't know how to evaluate risk. They think too much about how we're going to have it or not. It's like the school thing. It's like what you just told us in UNC is what is going to happen in Boston in September and probably by the third or fourth week of September. It's going to be a huge news that Boston, all the schools mm. have, I mean, it's obvious. Um, it's, it's predictable. And um, it's just to finish my introduction, I, it's been quite demoralizing to see how corruption and um, conflict of interest around the vaccination stuff and uh, the PCR, I mean, the testing and and, you know, having to be one of the people who are, I'm part of a joint group of scientists and experts here who we've been trying to get the data, but people are exhausted. We are all exhausted. We all do this on our own, you know, time and money and whatever. Right. And a lot of us don't get institutional. That's the reason, one of the reasons I left CIHIDEM because CIHIDEM was not supporting me in doing this. So, um, but the, the, the thing is, um, it's, it's a microcosm of what is happening in so many places. Um, but I, one of the things that is really is worrisome, I was listening to your definition, Dana, on outbreaks. And so the, the subsecretary of health last Sunday uh, defined and said, you know, that he was asked what is an outbreak and he's, he, he used your definition. And so the next day I went on the news, I went on CNN and I said, so I know I went to one of those good morning Americas kind of thing. Uh, they were deconfining the city, parts of the city. There was a huge mess. And I said, you see, we have an outbreak every minute in Chile. Because I was calculating exactly 1,440 minutes a day. This around that was exactly the number of day of cases. And it was an outpour. I was like, it was all day long. Just because I said that line of thinking. We have an outbreak at least one one a minute and it was the you know he, the, the government could not answer to that thing you know and because they want to sell the discourse of an outbreak when the pandemic is not under control i mean we expect outbreaks right but mm -hmm. they're, they're, they're they say we're gonna have outbreaks they say oh we're gonna have outbreaks yeah but you you still you you know the um, the the rate of contagion and the rate of the mortality rate every day is just crazy. So, um, so that's where we are. Yeah. I think the definition is a misnomer, though, because... Absolutely. To, well, to say that um, you've got an outbreak at, or a cluster at five or more, it, that's, it, it's the N, the N of five or the N of two saying that you've got, you know, mm -hmm. yep. cluster. It, it's just bad. It's just wrong. So, and I just, I was smiling so, because um, all of a sudden and it said two more clusters. So literally eight students. Yeah. Right, right, students right, right. Have been so let me, um, let me just, um, so for, uh, what an astounding, uh, Ameri we have a, a tour of the Americas today with our discussion. <laughs> uh, and uh, thank you all for sharing also talking so authentically about the stresses that you're all dealing with in your in your lives and as researchers. I know you've all come together as part of a working group to focus on the family and COVID-19. And this disease has put so much stress on families, uh, um, essential workers quarantined in their own homes, loss of work, 
students at home, uh, childcare. I mean, the, it, just to try to come up with measures for these impacts absolutely boggles the mind. So let me, I wanna hear from each of you on this. But Dana, I wanna start from you. Um, what is this working group aspiring to do? What are the core questions that you came together to research? Take us into how we should be thinking about how the family is holding up in COVID-19. Well, COVID-19 itself is an inverted disaster um, because we, we're living within you know, our basic creature comfort, and yet we're facing a major disaster, a major issue as a result of this virus that is all around us, and yet in some cases not around at all. It's, it's, a, it's a disaster that we can't see. Um, and so what we're looking at with this working group, the way that Jessica Pardee and I conceptualized it, is that family in and of itself as a, as a basic unit, as a basic, basic social unit, can be both an asset and a hindrance. Um, we've got our infrastructure um, intact and what we have is water that's potable. We've got power running. We've got challenges though to our basic social order. Um, so where family is often seen as an asset in disaster preparation, survival and recovery, the nature of the virus, the nature of COVID-19 requires social distance and isolation. Um, it prevents care work from retaining its traditional forms. Um, it simultaneously keeps families together through spatial confinement and also tears families apart. Um, and as a result, we're looking at the spatial rupture, as, we, as we're calling it, as well as the emotional congealing of social kin families. Um, those of first responders, those of coworkers, neighbors, athletic teams, clubs, systems of care. Um, uh, as support work was once done by familial kin, now it's being done by people outside of the family, people outside of the realm of social analysis. Um, and so our working group was put together under what we're calling the collective method. It's a group of 11 projects that looks at different aspects of family, loosely defined, um, and then comes together to form a basis of support for each project. Um, so our projects focus on everything from childcare and LGBTQ issues to disability, immigration, medicine, coping strategies, and sports during the pandemic. Um, with the family as the central key and central unit of analysis. Um, so I can say within most of our work, we're looking at um, children, we're looking at disabled, we're looking at the elderly, but we're also looking with all these different social um, variables at the confluence of, of a combination of variables. So we're looking at the confluence of poverty and race and age or poverty, race, age, and disability, or immigration status, or the impact of this uh, 2020 census that's happening right now and what that's going to mean in the age of a pandemic. So census takers or census responders as a cohesive group or non-cohesive group as the case may be because people are not answering their door. Um, we're looking at the election and people who are running the polls as a unified family group versus those who are trying to vote by mail as another group, perhaps not unified by anything other than, let's say, political party in our very divisive US um, form. But I can also say that for our family working group, the way that we 
um, conceptualized it is that we wanted to have it be um, an international group. So we have representation from Chile, from Canada, from India, um, Germany, and the US. Um, and for this, for the purposes of this call, I thought it would be interesting to have Christine from Canada and Gonzalo from, from Chile, and then obviously you and I from the United States. Um, because the way that we are looking at, at family may be similar in terms of what we've got as a written definition, but in practice, in each of these contexts is very different. Hmm. Let's go further with that. Christine, I know you, you've looked, you're looking at maybe, um, you think about the family, you're looking at the younger members and the older members maybe, and uh, mobilities within that context. Can you, can you tell us what aspects of the family are drawing you into this work and what you're finding? So the the approach to family that I'm using may be one that's more familiar to listeners in their everyday lives. So I'm, I'm focusing more on the children and the parents or the guardians in the family, as well as older adults who may also be grandparents or great or great grandparents. Um, so in that sense, the family unit may be more familiar to people. What's changing with COVID-19 is uh, these households are having to be much more deliver deliberate about who the household or who the family members are, taking into account health risks, taking into account uh, economic considerations and constraints. If someone is a frontline worker, um, they may have to redefine their family unit because they're they're separating themselves from their children or from the parents who who they're taking care of at their place um, you're seeing some ruptures between uh, the younger ch children and teenagers who are no longer able to see their grandparents or great grandparents and so the 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 care that uh, the older generations are, I'm, I'm I'm just seeing things pop up on the screen, <laughs> um, uh, and so our usual support si systems and the networks that we rely on to to function as social beings, as economic beings, those are being ruptured, and we're having to come up with al with alternatives. And so this this th these are some of the findings that are coming out. Um, so just the um, the deliberate cha uh, cha changes that people are having to imp to improvise with and to implement, and these are also changing as the public health restrictions are changing, and we're being told that we can do this, but the next day we can't do that. Um, as an example, um, here in Quebec, where I live, the age where you were not allowed to work um, was, or the the population at risk was um, 60 and up until the government decided uh, that they wanted schools and uh, daycares and other workplaces to reopen. And there were quite a few employer in, in employees in the 60 to 65 age range. So then the guidelines changed. So it was now 70 and up who were at risk. And so you have this population, the 60 to 65, 60 to 70, who 
aren't sure if they can trust this information if the change in public health guidelines is based on scientific research or if it's based on a political desire to have certain people return to work so the economy can re reopen. So the changing guidelines make it difficult for families to decide, can my five-year-old go to see my 62-year-old mother um, mm -hmm. based on these guidelines? So it's this intersection of public health guidelines, the personal networks that we rely upon in, in, in order to get our work done and our day and our day-to-day -day lives. Just to stay with that for one second, Christine, um, multi-generation families, um, multi-generation sort of family groups, and we think about those disruptions, how much does that also track to people who already might have some kind of economic vulnerabilities? Um, in other words, is that are there some correlations there so that people you're seeing not only this restrictions that you've just talked about, but these are also people that are using uh, grandparents or other elders in their family for childcare or other kinds of essential needs so that the family unit can, can work, the mother and father can work? Very much so. Um, here in Canada, in the various provinces, we have different childcare systems. So in Quebec, where, where I live, there's a very progressive childcare system where you, um, if you have uh, a provincial spot, then you're paying $8 a day per child. So it's very, very affordable as compared to in neighboring Ontario, um, you could be paying um, upwards of $100 per day. So, <laughs> um, so the, reliance on family for childcare is very different um, depending on your economic situation, depending on where you live in the country. So one of the things that this pandemic is really bringing to the fore is the need for a national childcare strategy. So let me, um, Gonzalo, bring you in on this. And I know you're your counselor and psychologist. I mean, I, I just would give my own experience that I grew up, um, my grandparents lived close by and they were, I mean, I interacted with them daily throughout my childhood until I was a teenager. Um, and they did provide childcare, but, but they provided much more than childcare. I think I didn't realize this till I was older, but I mean, they were just an essential grounding part of my life. And that's nothing to say about my parents, but I mean, I had very special, strong relationships with my grandparents. And I can only, I have to, I think you and I may have talked about this briefly, but when the pandemic first started, um, I actually had the strangest experience. I had a pang of concern for my grandparents. They've been dead for 20 years, but I had this feeling of concern at that moment, which spoke to me about this sort of intergenerational, multi-generational connections, which are part of sort of psychological grounding in a family, I think. I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit, your concerns about these configurations and how they're disrupted. And then I guess if you'd be willing to say a little bit about the specific Chilean context with that too, mm -hmm. because families are mm -hmm. under all sorts of economic stress in Chile as well. Yeah. Wow, that's a, that's a big, 
big question. Um, you know, one of my interests been in thinking about these families that that in some way we live in collective environments, um, you know, shanty towns, new settlements, informal territories. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna get to your question, Scott, but um, one of the things that I've been finding myself is writing and collaborating with um, this, you know, the ollas comunes, which means something like com the common pot, you know, um, which always have emerged during crises here, economic crisis, or during any of the disasters we have had. And they're pretty effective at, in this case, actually, you know, usually these, these common pods, these collective pods, uh, get people together and cook together and eat together and everything. In this case, it got people together to cook and get the stuff, but then delivering the food to, to the family. So, so I've been collaborating, and, 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 and you know, I, and I wrote about there early on uh, in the pandemic, actually before I, um, I joined the group, that, um, this group. I, the idea was to figure out how do we learn about that process, right? Um, and it, it has a lot of, and then get, getting to your question, it has an emphasis on getting to people who cannot walk, who, can, who have difficulty, older people, um, getting them the food. I mean, here, uh, retirement money is really low. I mean, it's, it really gets you in poverty. It's very, you know, there's a very few people who really can live off that. And so, so, um, so, so that's one piece. And then the other piece, and, and this is something that happened a lot. You know, I, I live in Spain, so I have a lot of connections with folks in the Basque Country and in, in, in Catalonia. And, and one of the things that happened there is that your life as an adult with kids depends on your a lot on your parents or great grandparents actually, because they pick up the kids' mm -hmm. school, they live close by. Right. Uh, it's part of the network that allows for longevity in Spain, which was you know that's the good thing about longevity, but also in, the, in terms of the virus, it was a mess because a lot of people die very early on, and they live longer. So the, the you know they live in the city; they're not separated in places. They're pretty integrated to the social life. They have their own groups. They have their own activities. Et cetera. So, just getting back to Chile, I the and and this is connected to also to the school return. I mean, one of the things that we've been fighting is against this technocratic view of getting kids back to school, which is. Um, it's about the grades and it's about moving to the next grade and it's about you got to learn these things so that you can test these things. You know, this obsession with the testing, similar to the States actually <laughs> in many places, that um, denies, and, the, and then, you know, it's funny, the right-wing government used this as it's, it generates more inequality if you don't get the kids back to school. But the fact is that the kids who the inequality was there, it's going to continue and it's going to be further by this, let's assume that. But one of the pieces that is, in answering your question, that is never seen is that these kids are going to be interacting with their grandparents and their aunts and their older uncles. And that is going to, you know, might be that the kids, only a few get the thing and the few get sick. And here we're going to get to the issue of a few die. And I always say, if an eight-year-old die in school, forget that the school is going to function for six months because you're going to have 
grieving and it's a disaster. It's a complete disaster. You know, it's psychologically that an eight-year-old die and a 13-year-old die suddenly because of the COVID. Imagine the impact on that community. And so, right. but that is going to impact the, you know, it's going to put people at risk. But also, what do you do? You know, here, older people cannot go out under no circumstances until this last Monday when they have hours thinking they can go out. There's a whole thing. Um, and there's a whole uproar among 75-year-old people um, who say, hey, you know, I'm an active member of society and they're treating me like a child. And I don't... So it's very complex. And, you know, the, one of the things that they discover in Spain is that one of the things that it was always invisible was the impact that we that this whole quarantine thing and and for was that the kids would have to get through school while being at home you know we speak about the pressure on us as parents well my kids are older but but my partner has you know teenagers but it is pressure for them to perform while we're going through this inverted disaster that dana was talking about it's crazy and it's having consequences i'm i'm thinking you know i became uh, those crazy things before the pandemic i ran for president of the division 43 of apa and i won um and <clears throat> which is the society of couple and family and so i'm thinking that's what is going to be one of the themes that i would like to have a symposium next year is this whole how you know the, the whole layers of things some of those were we just talked about how they work out during um, a pandemic and that they're completely invisible for the policymakers. You know, that they, they just see curves, they see patients. So, you know, I mean, I actually ask one of the people who work with the Minister of Education, I say, yeah, okay, fine. He says, oh, but the fatality rate is very low. And I say, look, if you're in a city of 40,000, you have two high schools, maybe one, actually. One kid died. And you're going to have a revolution in that town. And you're going to be responsible. Who's going to be responsible for the death of that kid? And let's say that a kid gets sick. He's the source. He's traced to being the source for every kid to get, not every kid, but, you know, a percentage of the kids get sick and one kid die. You're destroying the life of that kid who was, for whom the contagion was tracked to. Um, the guilt about it, because, you know, this is the whole thing about, the responsibility of people and you you know you, mm -hmm. you you're gonna enforce the law so that but what happens with someone feeling responsible for the death of another one it's it's, it's very complex you know it's, it's it's not simple Absolutely. Let me remind people you're listening to COVID calls and we're talking about um, family and stress and COVID-19 with Dana Green and Christine Gibb and Gonzalo Vasquez-Lupe. I want to bring in another layer of this and, and Dana, let me bring this to you first because early on in COVID calls, I talked with Amy Hamry and Amy Slayton um, about disability and about mutual aid and they really, um, it was a phenomenal discussion and, and got us thinking about um, 
you know, disability communities and people with chronic illness who already face significant stress within their family units and have to also improvise family um, and mutual aid. So can you talk to us about your findings in, in, in that regard and what you're seeing with COVID-19 for disability communities right now? I talked with them back in April, so we're into August now. I'd like to know what's, what's happening. Um, in the United States right now, things are going downhill fast. Um, right now, what we're seeing for communities of people with disabilities, whether they are physical disabilities, chronic illness types of disabilities, or cognitive disabilities, is that access to resources has been basically cut off. Um, there are food pantries that are available. There are um, some programs to get much needed medications, but in terms of rideshare services, many of those services have been shut down um, so that older people, especially, or people with physical disabilities are unable to get to certain places like senior centers or community rec centers or, um, how do we call it, um, physical therapy or therapy type types of sessions, because either those therapy sessions have been canceled or transportation to those sessions have been canceled. In addition, um, because of the individual in the White House, um, many people have lost their access to much needed medications. Um, it's very difficult to get medications that are made outside of the United States right now. Um, and bringing them in has posed a problem not only for people with more mild disabilities or more mild um, issues that might need to be medicated in some way, but also for people who need it on a more chronic basis, um, especially for older adults who have mobility disabilities and or have, let's say, a heart condition or blood disorders or, God forbid, cancers or something that's a little bit more terminal. Um, and so that has posed a tremendous problem. And when the medications are available, they are beyond expensive. Um, and so what we have to look at here are some of the issues that are Playing in. Now, there are some questions that have ra been raised that come out of the disability community um, that are really prevalent to thinking about the COVID-19 disaster as it is. Um, if we think COVID-19 issues that we've seen and the types of accommodations that have been very quickly put together for people all around the country, they're disabled and non-disabled alike, what we're seeing is that many of the accommodations are the types of things that people with disabilities have been asking for since the inception of the 1973 Rehabilitation Act and then also the Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, and that, that is are things like um, adaptations to the work environment, having meetings via Zoom, which has now become normalized and before was an exception. Um, having uh, um, people earn their, their regular salaries by working from home. Most of us, are, if not all of us, are talking to, we're talking to the world right now from our home offices or from our home, somewhere in our homes. Um, this was before just something that was an accommodation for people with disabilities and was often shunned and really stigmatized. Um, in addition, the, t the salaries that were being made by people who were working from home were cut. And now people are earning their full salaries by working from home. So that's another issue. Um, we could also look at the inception uh, and, and basic use of telemedicine. 
um, something that, you know, for a long time, people have been calling in and saying to my to their doctors, hey, I'm experiencing this symptom, this symptom, this symptom. And the doctor would say, well, I think you might have X, Y, or Z, but you might need to come in. Now we see full medical visits online, 100%, with just instructions, go get this test result or go get this treatment at the center if you will feel like you are willing to take your life into your hands, put on a mask and go. Um, and this raises a couple of questions, like why is it that the type of services that disabled people have been asking for um, for so long are now being normalized for the non-disabled? And this leads us to another question that is moving down the line, as we pass through this pandemic and get to the other side, will these practices still be in play and still now be normalized 100% across the board? And what does that mean in terms of how people with disabilities and people who are lacking disabilities, or as we call in sociology, temporarily able-bodied, because at some point everybody would have some type of disability. Um, how is it that people will be then on either a level playing field or will people without disabilities still be privileged above those with disabilities? That's such a... Um, Huge questions. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, it's such a remarkable point to make, and and uh, that to be told your entire life, well, no, such accommodations are just not possible. And then, literally within 30 days, these accommodations are made possible in countries around the world. It also raises the concern, I, from what I've been reading, that they could then flip the other way, and and could then one. And you even said in your in your first part of the answer to this question was um, because these things are not budgeted. They do, they get pulled back too by this point in the pandemic, like the rideshare services. Christine, I don't know if you wanted to comment on anything that Dana was just talking about or, or bring this into the perspective of, of your work about these issues. Um, just, just to add on to what Dana was saying, in the Canadian context, the government has introduced uh, the Canadian Emergency Response Benefit. So it's a, a payout that you can get and it's um, it's $500 a week for up to four months. And one of the issues that's been raised by um, disability advocates is this question of, do our lives count for less? Um, because over the years, uh, Canada's disability assistance rates haven't kept up with the cost of living. And so all of a sudden, when COVID hit, um, the government was able to find these pots of money to pay workers to stay at home uh, to make up for their salaries. Um, but these same requests from from these from from the from the disability advocates have gone pretty much onto deaf ears um, for years and years and years. So uh, exactly what Dana was saying that these accommodations that advocacy groups have been asking for in terms of telehealth um, and, so, and so on, it was always no, no, no. But then when uh, temporarily able-bodied persons suddenly had to stay at home, then all of these accommodations were developed. So they're not perfect. And I don't know if they're going to be sustained after the pandemic. 
but there was def but but there was much more of a willingness to explore these possibilities. So there is this opening of the conversation, even though it's not necessarily going to stay. Let me, um, we're, we're uh, just reminding everybody you're listening to COVID calls and you can still get a question in if you want to, just put it in the YouTube live chat. Um, we've got a few minutes left. We're almost up on time. So much terrain here still to cover, but to the point that both of you are just raising, I'd like to get a quick um, hit from each of the three of you. Is this a possibility of a moment of activism in, and political reform. Um, and I'd like to hear about that from each of your perspective for each of your countries that you're calling from. Um, disasters, in my experience, more often than not provide, um, they, they don't turn into lasting social welfare reforms. If anything, sometimes they do the opposite. They marginalize and further damage people who are already marginal. Yet this is a different kind of disaster, Dana. As you said, it's an inverted disaster. Also, the temporality of it is weird. It's longer. It will extend past election cycles. So I'm less pessimistic than usual that there is a possibility for politics here to emerge in the moment. Could I get a just a quick round um, from each of you on this? Gonzalo, let me start with you, and then Christine, yep. back to you, and then Dana. Yeah, so definitely yes. And at the same time, no. <laughs> um, you know, one of the, okay. So first, I, I I've been thinking a lot about this, and I think that the first thing is the moment, um, because it's so long, and because it requires quarantine for those who are doing quarantines, or requires a complete reshuffle of your life because of this thing. And and I call it not anymore a disaster. I call it a catastrophe because. Countries cannot do this alone. They require another country to help them. And that, that is the definition of a catastrophe. So, uh, I mean, the deployment of the vaccine means that to resolve it, quote, resolve it, it's not gonna resolve everything. But, but what, it, what, it, what I think it does is, is, is that it forces everybody, not everybody, but at least it forces people who are interested in change into think about what matters. Um, mm -hmm. And so in that sense, for those who are more progressive or maybe liberal or more neoliberal, um, I don't think that for people in the fascist, very right-wing conservative, it's going to change. They're going to hung down like they do around the climate crisis, I think. They're not going to change. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are groups that are not going to change. But I think for a lot of people... It's going to mean to rethink the idea of growth. They're going to rethink the idea of exploiting mm -hmm. nature. They're going to rethink the idea of what it means to be a cage animal. Is, so a lot, they, it might make them rethink about how to value common spaces. Uh, and also the idea of what a right is. So in that sense, the right to health. I mean, if we cannot get universal health care out of this, we're screwed. I mean, uh, if we cannot get, it means that we never change. <laughs> That's what, that means that it's true. If we cannot advance into securing a minimal income for people in many places, we are messed up. I mean, that kind of thing. I mean, if we, because in some way, and, you know, I did a study that was published um, 
in, in Massachusetts around Latinos in Massachusetts and how bad we do in Massachusetts in terms of COVID. And, you know, and if we don't do something, I mean, what happens in the United States that it gets mixed with the issue of racism and institutionalized racism in Chile gets mixed up with the issue of access and dignity and all that. So that I think that that piece is central. And then there's another yeah. small one. I think that this crisis, and this is what you do here, Scott, and which some of us are doing everywhere, is that we are redefining the relationship between science and politics. Um, that the idea, we know, I think all of us know that it's not about I'm doing my research and then policy people are gonna be interested and they're gonna change the laws. We know that that doesn't, it's not the case, it doesn't work that way. But that the COVID, the speed, because quote is a slow disaster, but the speed of change of information is so quick. I mean, every day you're learning new things that things happening defines how we do prevention. This whole thing about suddenly the frozen food or the aerosol or anything. I mean, it, it, some fake, some not real, but, but in a way, what is our role as academics, as people who do, as for knowledge workers, knowledge workers that create knowledge, actually, not knowledge workers, knowledge creators. What is our role in policymaking and politics? And I think that in many, many different ways, this is going to lead us to reconceptualize a lot of things, and that should lead to, hopefully, some change. Um, okay. Yeah. Those are the There's two things. Note of, uh, yeah, I appreciate that. And I'm going to bring that back to Christine and to Dana possibility that this is a moment of political formation, particularly around support for family and support for people with disabilities. And Gonzalo has thrown down the gauntlet that actually we academics have a role to play here too. I like that provocation. Christine, what do you think? Um, just to add on to everything that Gonzalo said, some great thoughts there. I'm hopeful that the pandemic will create more of an opening for a, a feminist response mm -hmm. to the pandemic and how we rethink the way that our societies function, the way our economies work, um, and that we're building in more of a focus on our ecological systems and on the environment because we're actually able to work from home. We, we don't need all of this dependence on fossil fuels except for powering our computers and, and and all that. But going back to the feminist response to the pandemic, when we're thinking about uh, infrastructure, so if you have a crisis, when you think of your economic crisis or um, a, another typical disaster with a hurricane or flooding, there's a slew of money that's poured into rebuilding roads and bridges and buildings. So mm -hmm. it's very physical. It's very much focused on the jobs that are typically held by men. And so they're coming out of disasters. Um, research has shown that in most cases, men disproportionately benefit than as, as compared to women. With this inverted disaster, we don't have uh, falling telephone poles and broken bridges, uh, but we do see that our social infrastructure needs some serious work. So we have this opening to invest in social infrastructure, investing in care, investing in our education systems, which 
where as as Gonzalo has pointed out, are vastly diff, diff, different for different um, people around the world, for different um, economic classes, different um, all sorts of things. So investing in childcare, investing in health, investing in L in L in L care and in Canada one of the, the conversations that's happening is do we need to bring in a universal basic income so right. there is this opening um, and I'm hopeful that this will translate into political action and policies that are put into place Thank you both for that. And we're we're just about up on, on time. I know that we we'll all have go. other meetings you have to go to. Gonzalo, you're gonna yeah. go. And, I'm and, sure and we'll have you back your, soon. Uh, yeah, and I listen to your record the recording with Dana. Thank you. Okay. Take care, my friend. Dana, then could you um, like to get your sense of this from the US perspective and, and any sort of final thoughts you want to convey just about the sure. about the work you're doing right now? Well, there's a lot that is running through my mind as I listen to Gonzalo and also to Christine. Um, and the first thing that I want to point out is that, you know, international human rights law um, maintains that the government has an obligation to provide and protect people's rights um, to adequate standards of living in terms of food and nutrition, in terms of health, and in terms of social security. And I would venture to go out on a limb here and say that the United States is failing miserably. Um, we are just not providing what we need. Um, and in fact, we are vilifying and stigmatizing those who end up needing to ask for the help. Um, and so with that, with regard to what we need to be doing and the feminist response that um, Chris mentioned, um, I think that we are all looking at various different aspects of this pandemic as a social, as an environmental, as an ecological disaster. Um, and I venture to say that it's also a disaster that it disproportionately affects people of color as well as people with disabilities and older adults. Um, because we know that social isolation in and of itself can affect uh, mental health and that mental health kinds of issues will also affect the susceptibility to various viruses and various um, external um, diseases that could be brought into a family unit. Um, I'd also like to bring up the idea of um, the Black Lives Movement, Black Lives Matter movement, and what that has meant um, in terms of the pandemic and people being out there demonstrating after George Floyd. Um, um, and I think that, that, that the racial dynamics in this country um, are also affecting our response to the pandemic because people are out there saying, well, if you can protest while wearing a mask, you can stand in line to vote. Or you can, and they're equating the two when they're two very different kinds of issues. Um, right. We need to look at all of the different kinds of things that are happening in our society and really pay attention to the fact that we are not addressing any one issue substantially enough. Um, and I would also venture to say that, um, and it's something that I, I raised with a variety of, of, of colleagues recently, that as we aim to provide a more thoughtful, a more feminist and a more realistic response to this pandemic and addressing it in a way that affects all across, affects people across all 
the various different spectrums, that we need to really look at giving aid and providing aid and access to resources, people who might not have access to health insurance, people who might not have access to medical care, or children who are living within food insecure families and don't have access to the breakfasts and the lunches that they would normally get at school. Um, and hunger also is a predisposition to contracting the virus. Um, we really need to look at how we can increase the relief that we're getting for. COVID. Um, right now, the United States is in a situation where the, the discussions about a new COVID relief plan have fallen through. And this, the Congress has left session without there being any kind of agreement for people who actually really do need it. Um, we've also got an economy that's on the verge of recession. We have um, people who are being kept in prisons and unsafe situations. We have immigrants that are being treated as criminals. All of these different variables are affecting how we see and how we are treating and how we are responding to the pandemic um, and help needs to be given. So if on the verge of, you know, when we think about the family and the family um, working group, what we are hoping for is to be be able to highlight the experiences of people in these different groups, in these different familial groups, if you will, people with disabilities, older adults, children in mm -hmm. childcare, mm -hmm. healthcare workers, if you will, and to address the inequities that exist within the system in terms of building up the family unit instead of cutting it down. Well, we've had a, a few different uh configurations of Converge working groups, and I'm just universally astounded at what you're all accomplishing. And the breadth of what you're taking on right now is is important. Um, I wish you good luck and stamina with this work. Um, thank you for surfacing so many of these concerns. And and it was really, I don't think this thing is the first call we've had where I actually had, um, we didn't have Central America, but we had the Americas really represented. It's it's interesting to get that that perspective on things. I want to remind people you've been listening to COVID calls, and tomorrow, we'll be talking to historian John Barry, um, the author of The Great Influenza and other books, and we'll be talking about um, this the nineteen eighteen pandemic and twenty twenty. John has a, a opinion piece up in the New York Times yesterday. Check that out, and look forward to talking with him. And I want to thank. Dana Green and Christine Gibb and Gonzalo Basaglupe, who's not on screen at this time, but I think is listening in. Thank you all so much for this hour. Appreciate what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. Stay healthy, everyone. See you tomorrow, five o'clock.